Welcome to Spilling Chai on the Pain Gap. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain, and if you follow my work, you've probably heard me described as a feminist policy analyst or heard me talking about my years spent on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C., lobbying on global, global health legislation. But one of the main pieces of legislation and issues that I worked on during my time at the Feminist Majority Foundation uh, was women's reproductive health and rights working for it, securing it, protecting it, advocating on it, and of course, lobbying on it. And one of the key pieces, um, policy pieces that we really worked on was a policy called the Mexico City Policy, which is more commonly known by feminists and advocates as the Global Gag Rule. Now, this is a U.S. Uh, foreign policy, which means that it is not implemented in the U.S., but it is something that the U.S. actually implements overseas to any NGOs um, that receive any any uh, U.S. funding, whether it's technical funding or financial assistance. They cannot use the word abortion in any of their work. They cannot advocate on the issue of abortion. They can't even refer you, you refer a young woman who is um, um, at their facility on to go to another facility, which may uh, even provide an abortion or abortion-related services. This is why it's called a gag rule, <laughs> because it would be completely unconstitutional in the U.S., but of course it is a stipulation, it is a policy that the U.S. implements abroad. It's also become an extremely partisan U.S. policy, which means that you know Republicans usually implement it and Democrats usually repeal it. And it's usually something that the president does of either party, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, whoever comes in, it's usually one of their first orders of business is to uh, repeal or reinstate this policy, which has deadly implications for women's health and rights all over the world. I'm so excited today because we have not one, not two, but three speakers from the really amazing organization, Population Services International. And so I'm going to quickly read you the bios of our three esteemed uh, guests uh, today. And I really encourage you, as always, I'm going to be reading an abridged version of their bio. So I really do encourage you to look up their work um, and see all the amazing things they've done on behalf of women's health and rights. Our first guest is Dr. Michelle Bratcher Goodwin. She's a Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, and founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She is an elected member of the American Law Institute, as well as an elected fellow of the American Bar Foundation and the Hastings Center, the organization central to the founding of bioethics. She is also the host of the On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin podcast, which is, of course, from Ms. Magazine. Next up, we have Jess Jacobs, who is a feminist artist, activist, and philanthropist, a creative storyteller. Jess is galvanizing the movement for equality through the fight for women's reproductive rights. And she co-founded the woman-led New York-based production company, Invisible Pictures. Jacobs has also regularly collaborated with nonprofit organizations such as Planned Parenthood and the National Women's Law Center on special projects that advance women's reproductive rights. Last but certainly not least, our guest is Dr. Millie Nanyombi Kagwa. She is the Senior Clinical Advisor for Africa at Population Services International, where she supports a service delivery portfolio that spans over 30 countries in maternal, newborn and child health, family planning, and sexual and reproductive health programs. 
She is a medical doctor and public health professional with over 15 years experience, and she currently provides technical assistance throughout East and Southern Africa. These three incredible women are my guests today on Spilling Chai on the Pain Gap. And of course, there's an entire chapter, chapter two, in fact, on the global gag rule in my book, The Pain Gap, How Sexism and Racism in Healthcare Kill Women. I hope you enjoy today's show. Thank you so much. Hello. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for being with me today. Uh, Jess Jacobs, I am going to start with you. Talk to me about how you got involved in this work and why should Americans care about safe abortion around the world? That is an excellent question. Thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I really got involved in this issue because of a personal experience. Um, so I, I tell my abortion story um, regularly as, in, as a part of sort of destigmatization efforts. Um, but I got pregnant when I was 19. Um, I chose to have an abortion. That was not a difficult decision for me, but what was difficult was the aftermath of that, which in which I felt very alone. I felt very isolated. Um, and uh, I didn't feel that there was really a, a space to talk about my experience. Um, I ended up a couple of years later telling my mom finally that I'd had an abortion and she has consented to me sharing her story as well because she informed me that she had also had an abortion also as a teenager. And I had no idea because we didn't talk about it growing up. And so this was this kind of big light bulb moment for me that there was something happening that we weren't talking about that was harming, you know, people um, around the world. I mean, definitely here, but if I was living in New York City at the time in college, uh, a very liberal place, um, my Planned Parenthood was around the corner from me. If, if I felt like that was sort of a, a heavy burden to, to carry and that my story was, that I didn't find a space for my story, that probably that was happening all around the world. And so that was kind of really where I, where I started. Good. Tell me about, uh, because you, you work in the film industry, tell me about the film that you made, um, Glo the Global Her Project, and tell me about how, how you decided to do that. And uh, yeah, talk to me more about that. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that will connect to, to sort of why Americans should care. Um, so this was a project that I collaborated with Mary John Frank, who's a fabulous director and choreographer. Um, and then um, Erica Rose um, produced alongside me. Um, so this sort of very femme group of creators came together. We created a short um, musical PSA type uh, piece, which is all about the global gag rule. You can find more info on www.globalherproject.com. You can watch the video there, um, read through a little bit of sort of FAQ. Um, and this project was put together because in when Trump came into office, um, he signed an executive order for the global gag rule. And as somebody myself who had done quite a bit of domestic, or you know, a little bit of domestic advocacy at that point, um, I was. 24, I think, 25. I didn't, I hadn't ever heard of the global, global, global gag rule because Obama had been in office for the majority of my sort of life. Um, and so uh, myself and also Mary John Frank and, and Erica, we all were like, what is this policy? What does this mean? And it really, I think, spoke to sort of U US hegemonic approach to 
uh, to sort of like our, our role in the world and um, had such sort of deep colonialist ties. It's so harmful. And the way in which uh, Trump had expanded the global gap rule also was one of these kind of um, ways in which I saw how abortion access really is a precursor to so many other um, harmful and impactful things um, that the U.S. Um, has the capacity to do because of our, our role in the world and because of sort of how we've established ourselves uh, in a lot of cases harmfully, clearly. Um, and so especially when, I mean, when COVID came around, we saw how much care had been reduced because of the global gag rule. It was evident that abortion access is actually kind of a, a marker for where as a, as a world and as a country we are in terms of providing health care to our most marginalized and I mean, and and to, to the rest of us, you know, from I think the grass tops to the grassroots, it really impacts everybody. It really impacts everybody. I love that you said that because I think a lot of people don't understand how intertwined women's health and women's rights are globally and how such a big donor and powerful rich nation like the US can implement and affect the health and rights of women and girls around the world. Like it would blow the average Americans uh, mind. Which brings me to you, Dr. Kagwa. So I wanted to ask you because I feel like we've all had experience on the policy level. I mean, I live in DC, so this is an issue I've worked on on Capitol Hill and advocates and activists here and policymakers and allies, you know, we have so much stress and anxiety over the ping pong of this policy. And of course, there's a lot of movement to permanently repeal the global gag rule. Talk to me though about what you see on the ground. What do you, what kind of confusion and stress does this cause when you have, yay, Obama's here, but then Trump is here, so he's expanding it, oh, Biden's back. I mean, if I was somebody on the ground, it would almost be better to not take US funding, but obviously people don't have that choice. Yeah, um, thank you, Anisha, for having me in this discussion. And you're definitely right. Uh, having the global guru um, sometimes and not having it sometimes is definitely a big problem for uh, programs that are implementing safe abortion programs uh, worldwide in Africa, where I work as well. You see, in Africa, you, we have a lot if I can just give a global figure, 25 million avoidable um, unsafe abortions globally. And those um, are occurring mainly in, again, the lower um, income countries, uh, global south countries like Uganda, where I am. So um, you see, I've, I've been unfortunate to be there when it was, uh, when Obama was uh, was a president, we had, it wasn't, there was no guru. And then I was also there when uh, President Trump um, placed a, an even expanded one. And what we did see was organizations like Population Services International, where I work, losing out on lots of millions of dollars which would have been used to um, implement programs uh, for women and children. Instead, uh, moving that money to be able to comply to the global gag rule, to be able to work within the partnerships that all of a sudden um, became really small because local organizations could not necessarily implement uh, their normal health programs, HIV malaria programs, if they were also having um, safe abortion programs. And that means that the funding that they had was really reduced to um, 
and, and they had to make a decision whether they will be able to continue this work or whether they would have to pull out of that work. So at PSI, we decided that really we needed, it would be irresponsible to look away. And it made sense to try and despite the difficulties and hurdles, continue to work within the safe abortion space because women still need contraceptive uh, uh, services, which are a problem for many people in the, uh, uh, in the environment that I work in. So to see how it really does affect um, uh, a, a space where I work, you will find health providers that used to have programs that were uh, giving out HIV services, integrated services, sexual reproductive health services. They can't do that anymore. They have to make a choice. Either they'll, they'll to be able to receive funding, they'll reduce the, the sexual reproductive health programs that they can provide and just provide the malaria funding. And given the global pandemic that we're having, we've seen lots of teenage pregnancies, we've seen lots of women being impacted by um, unwanted pregnancies that they still seek unsafe uh, abortion uh, uh, methods for, just to be able to um, meet their sexual productive health needs. I think that's something that so many people don't understand in Africa, in Asia, in America, that when you make abortion difficult to access, it's not that women aren't gonna have it. They're just not gonna get a safe legal one. You know, they're gonna have dangerous back alley abortions, which, you know, exist around the world. And I hate that term, but with what's happening in America now, um, maybe we will lose our right to abortion <laughs> again um, before so many other countries. Um, what what do you want people in the states to understand about the impact of U.S. policy, and why why should Americans care? This yeah. is something I asked Jess, but I, this is the question at the heart of this episode because, of course, we all understand why Americans should care. But somebody watching this, why should they care? It doesn't affect them, does it? Yeah, I, I think it is. That's a very good question that you ask. Um, why should this matter to uh, an average American citizen? Um, I think Americans have been um, very well educated about their laws. They know the impact um, that will come out of the Supreme uh, Court ruling. That's not necessarily the case in some of the lower income countries where I come from. Women don't necessarily know what the law is about. Service providers don't even know what the law is. And these are countries where there's uh, high restriction to the, the abortion is restricted, maybe not necessarily completely burned, but restricted. So, and in those restricted settings, women might actually be uh, eligible for, for instance, a legal abortion, but if they don't know, the provider does not know, then we're going to have um, women um, not being able to access safe abortions. So in, in the US, this conversation is coming at a time where I think it is possible to put the conversation really even out of the US context to a global uh, audience so that it can open up the discussion for even countries outside the US. Um, the US is the leader. The, the, the US is one of the biggest um, funders of global health. If they make um, changes that change the environment uh, or in safe abortion, even in the US, those we shall see uh, somehow um, impacting on the laws that are existing already in Africa, in Asia, um, in South America. Yes, we have seen um, some tremendous movements towards um, uh, lifting of restrictions in some countries. We've seen four countries um, in the recent past that have passed better abortion, I mean, that have re uh, lifted the restrictions, Benin, Argentina, Colombia, uh, are some of those countries. But how about the rest of the world, which is still dependent on US funding for their 
sexual reproductive health programs, contraceptive programs, malaria programs, HIV programs. So again, once you have the global guard rule moving the goalposts, it's hard to make lasting um, uh, lasting um, impact on unsafe abortion. And um, it's hard to make lasting um, changes that affect women positively. And it's really a sexual reproductive health issue, a public health issue, and a human rights issue that we are talking about here. Oh, perfect. I'm getting my blood is boiling. And you know, we, we, we are saying women, but a lot of times often these are very young girls we're talking about. I mean, I grew up in Bangladesh, so I have seen it. A lot of times these, these people we're talking about are kids. They're 13 year old girls. They're, you know, 12 year old girls. Um, often impregnated through sexual violence. I mean, the, it's the whole, as we all know, cycle and it's all connected. Which brings me to you, Dr. Goodwin. So it's incredible to me, even though I've been working on this issue for so long, how domestic uh, American, domestic abortion politics spills out into the international arena. From a legal perspective, how is America able to implement a policy that would literally be unconstitutional in America? There's a reason we're calling it the global gag rule. It is called, by the way, to my audience really quick, it is the Mexico City policy. Obviously, I will speak about this in my in my intro, but how is America able to do this? Please help us with your brilliant legal mind. Well, first, I want to thank you for having me with you and with these really such impressive guests. I, I'm really pleased and honored to be in all of your uh, company. And, you know, I think it's important that we think about not just the Mexico City policy, the global, global gag rule, um, talk about a mouthful, um, but also the Helms Amendment as well and who these people are. Uh, who have been behind these types of actions. The first question that you ask is, how in the world is it that the United States could determine policy in other places? Well, let us not be too far removed from the fact that the United States is a country that sits in and on indigenous lands, right? I mean, it's something that we just take for granted and we move from. Let's pay attention to the fact that as part of the capital that made the United States what it is, that it was a country that bought into uh, by law, by policy, by culture, through judicial um, sanction, um, slavery, right? The, the kidnap, the trafficking of children, of women, of men, um, the sexual subordination um, of that baked into a soil, not for a, a, your sort of a one day experiment, not for a week long experiment, but something that lasted centuries and a Supreme Court that upheld laws doing that. So that is just to sort of set the frame for like, how in the world could that be? I mean, we're already talking about, you know, a space from which there has been slavery, colonialism, Jim Crow. Um, the sanctioning of the most horrific things that we have ever seen. Um, eugenics, right? I mean, we could go on, but I need to get to Mexico City and the Helms Amendment. But when, but when you start from that space, then um, it's perhaps not within reach. And especially when you think about American slavery itself as being something that was rooted in the sexual subordination of a whole group of people denying them bodily autonomy, privacy, liberty, reproductive freedom. When you start from that type of positionality and then you go into a positionality that is eugenics, 
that says we can even further deny you the opportunity to ever reproduce. It really doesn't matter which way we're controlling it. It is all about control. And for the United States Supreme Court in 1927 to uphold Virginia's eugenics law that was then taken by the Third Reich and implemented in Germany. Well, then we could see that then, you know, 50 years on from that, not even 50 years on, that Jesse Helms in 1973, right after the United States Supreme Court um, banned laws that would criminalize abortion, that Jesse Helms then uh, pushed through Congress, through the United States Senate, the Helms Amendment, which would deny U.S. funds from being used with regard to abortion. Um, and then that would serve as a platform later on for the Mexico City policy. You know, and I, and I wanna just point out that at the time, even Richard Nixon was in opposition of the Helms Amendment. Most people in the Senate were, but we must also understand the connective tissue behind the person who first proposed this, completely understanding what he was doing. You know, person who was a self-professed sexist he was homophobic, did not want funding for HIV and AIDS research, was a person who was self-described in his racial animosity, right? It was from this space that we see the denying of women abroad and girls abroad the opportunity to be able to determine their own reproductive destinies. Uh, and I think that that's really important as we think about in the United States, what all of this is rooted in, because we've also failed to see the interconnective threads of white supremacy as being connected with the denial of reproductive health care. And for people who think that that's a stretch, there, there are articles that have been written. It has been shown that the, the people who have been um, terrorizing people at abortion clinics were some of the people who showed up on January 6th. Um, to try to take down our capital and to uh, interrupt the U.S. election process on January 6th of 2021. So I mean, I'll stop there. There's so much more that I could say to unpack that. But, but let me just say this. At the time in which the Helms Amendment uh, was put to the Senate and Jesse Helms coerced his colleagues into the passage of that amendment, literally holding up U.S. funds, abroad until he could get his way. And then he refused to even uh, sign on to his own amendment because he did not support U.S. funds going abroad. But it's worth noting what Bella Abzug said at the time, that this was an emotional prohibition of abortion and that it was a misuse of the legislative process and of the aid program. And she told her colleagues in Congress, I regret that the, sec uh, that the section does seem to place us in the questionable position of imposing on women abroad a restriction recently overturned by our United States Supreme Court and constitutes a serious interference with the, inter with the internal affairs of other countries. And so I I'll end there, but it is to say that when we look at how this could happen, it comes from a space that has never been empathetic, gentle, or kind, or understanding or caring about the integrity, dignity, independence, and privacy of women of color. Um, I am very rarely left speechless. And I think that was, an, a, your answer was an education 
even for me. And you're so right. You just took us to church. You're so right. In the Helms Amendment. God, Jesse Helms, man. Even in his death, <laughs> still affecting the health and rights of women and girls around the world. Well, from you're so right. You're so right. The roots. Where? What are we talking about? We always have to go back to the roots of the. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. That's right. I mean, that the roots of this is born in, uh, from a man who was an adamant segregationist, a person who called Dr. King, Dr. Kuhn, right? I, I mean, we who opposed uh, the first LGBTQ woman uh, to be nominated to a significant federal position, uh, who, who explicitly spoke in uh, homophobic ways, explicitly um, in racist ways. And we're not talking about someone rooted in the, you know, 1850s. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the 1770s. <laughs> we're talking about the 1970s, 80s of Jesse Helms is the person who was leading this way and who purposely understood that this type of legislation would handcuff and would impose the kind of social conditions on women and girls abroad that would keep them in a subordinate and second-class position, which coming from his state and the way in which he talked about black people was something that he was certainly not unfamiliar with. Well, with that, um, before my blood gets any hotter thinking about Jesse Helms, um, I wanted to ask you, because there is a lot of momentum to just repeal the global gag rule permanently. What are the chances of that from a legal perspective? Well, there are always the possibilities that we can, in fact, um, climb onto that moral arc of justice and do the right thing. I think if there are any lessons that we have in law from let's say Plessy v. Ferguson, which instantiated um, second class citizen literally in law post emancipation. Um, and then we see the lift of that. Um, took almost a hundred years, but we see the lift of that through Brown v. Board of Education. In the 1960s, we saw the 1964 Civil Rights Act enacted, sadly after um, the deaths and harms that were experienced by American Black people who fought so hard for our Constitution to have real meaning be beyond paper, but to really live up to its promise of equality for all. And then we saw the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And the reason why I mentioned that, I, I mentioned the Supreme Court, and I also mentioned Congress, that it is absolutely possible for Congress to do the right thing. It is absolutely possible that a Supreme Court can um, do the right thing, striking down unjust laws, upholding just laws. But we are at a time in which it is a very fractured system of democracy right now. There are international organizations that have declared that the U.S. is a democracy that is in decline. But there are people who are in Congress that are fighting for uh, the codification of Roe and who are also fighting for the permanent repeal of the Helms Amendment. And so there is a momentum now, um, perhaps um, a momentum that we have not seen 
um, in recent decades, but that is afoot now uh, to make sure that we codify and protect uh, reproductive health rights and justice domestically and abroad. And I think it's really important that you're doing this show. And I think it's really important that we connect the threads of reproductive health, liberty and freedom to democracy. The two go hand in hand. The two go hand in hand. And you know what really drives me crazy is that when I was growing up, it was America that was telling us this, right? They were like, give women access to contraceptives. They will choose to have smaller families, give them access to jobs. It's tied to democracy. And now here we are in 2022 about to lose our abortion rights here. Um, to wrap up, I wanna ask everybody because despite the doom and gloom, um, I'm actually very hopeful. I really am. I feel like the pandemic has just exposed how important it is to invest in women's health and to listen to women, <laughs> please. Um, so I want to ask everybody, I'm gonna start with Jess and I'll go to Dr. Kago and end with you, Dr. Goodwin, but what is giving you hope right now? I love this question. I think that we're really seeing a galvanization um, towards storytelling towards abortion storytelling, towards sharing our experiences, towards sort of the honoring of, of community and of building of community. And I think that that's really the thing that's gonna bring us forward. One in three women in the world have had an abortion. One in four women in the United States have had an abortion. There is not the statistics for folks who do not identify as women, but there are then even more than that for folks who can get pregnant who don't identify as women. There, this is a large community and we all can support each other. There is a movement towards what I call abortion joy that I really love in which we connect with each other based on the experiences that we've had. And I think that that kind of elevation of, of what it means to be able to make a decision about your own body, about your own future, about your own rights, your own position in the world. I think that that's something that as I'm, as I'm sort of connecting with other folks and, and seeing this movement really grow, that is giving me a lot of hope in the face of some of the scary stuff that's happening. I love that you said that and that you brought up the point on storytelling because it's something I talk about in my book because I'm kind of obsessed now with what women don't talk about and the stories that we keep to ourselves. But there is so much power when we start sharing our stories. You just realize, oh, I'm not the only one. And the shame and the stigma of abortion, I really hope, I have two little girls, I really hope that this does not continue because as you said, one in three women, one in four women, you had one, your mother had one, I had one, my mother had one. And, and can I tell you the joy of abortion indeed, if I was not able to access that abortion, I would, I would definitely not have the life that I, that I have now. And by the way, I'm 42 now. I should not have been becoming a mother when I had my abortion. I mean, I am grateful for that. Um, I'm grateful for that every day. Um, so Dr. Kakwa, what is giving you hope? Well, what's giving me hope is um, at least these advances in, medi in, medi in, in medication. Um, previously, uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there was nothing available for women. They needed to go to a health provider who was like the gateway to services. But now we're seeing um, even the abortion pill, um, the availability of a medication abortion pill that can be accessed, um, that World Health Organization says is safe for women to use in their first trimester. Um, that World Health Organization says you do not need to have a, a, a medical personnel help you to administer as, lo as long as you, you have the eligibility. I think that gives me hope, lots of hope that um, 
women now have at least some safe options and they don't have to go through the very, um, very, very risky um, decisions that were made by our parents, by those who came before us. Yes, hopefully we will not see the return of the coat hanger. And yes, for Mifepristone, which by the way, Feminist Majority was so involved in those early, early clinical trials for Mifi. Um, Dr. Goodwin, what is giving you hope? It's giving me hope is that we're having conversations like the one we're having today. And it gives me hope that we're connecting the dots and that people are beginning to see and news media are beginning to report just the interconnective uh, tissues between these kinds of issues. I really do think that as people are paying attention to matters of democracy and are seeing the fracturing of democracy in the very places where there is the denial of reproductive access, that these two things go hand in hand. And I think that that is a really important point. It's a sophisticated point that was missed by many people decades ago. I think that many people who were people of color and who were vulnerable saw it. But I think that today it is far more revealing for everyone. And that actually gives me hopes because we begin to center democracy and then we begin to center, well, what are the needs of all people and how do we make this a better society and in making this a better society then we're going to be talking about abortion which is really important but we'll be talking about maternal mortality and morbidity and we'll be talking about access to contraception and we'll be talking about access to sex education and more and really understanding that reproductive rights is a is a is a wheel that has many different spokes and prongs and that we need all of that together in order to really fulfill the promise of what reproductive freedom and liberty really happens to be and I think we're at that time where we can have those conversations. I think so too. Amen. Hallelujah. Ladies, I could speak to you all day. This is my favorite topic. I mean, not the global gag rule, but like women's health and women fighting for getting their rights back. Thank you so much for your time. I will be speaking to you all very, very soon. And yes, I was so, I'm so happy, Dr. Kagwa. Are you in Uganda right now? Yes, it's 7 p.m. in Kampala right now. Uh, yes, and uh, this is the time. This is the deadly time for video calls and internet calls. Oh, so, my apologies again. <laughs> A deadly time. I love it, but you still made it. Thank you so much, ladies. Stay safe, and I will speak to you all very soon. Thank, Thank you so much. much for having me. Good Thank to be with you, you. all. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.